Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Job chapter 34 for this evening. We're going to try to get to the end of Elihu's speech tonight. At the end of his speech, he's even going to say that God is coming from the north. And so he's preparing the way for God to actually show up four chapters from now. We may get all four chapters tonight. But people keep sending me a Facebook meme that says there's a a very small difference between a long sermon and a hostage situation. And so I'm aware of that, and I'm, I'm not going to try to keep you too very long. But. I saw that, but I didn't send it to you. Yeah, well, you're the only one who didn't then, because it shows up in my inbox fairly regularly now. Last week, when I posted the message... A couple of people pointed out that I did not define the name Elihu. You may recall that Matthew tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So in the Hebrew, this Eli is a name of God, and it means my God. Elihu means my God is him, essentially, or he is my God. There is some speculation that Elihu is a Christophany. I don't agree because we're told what his descent is. We're told what family line he comes out of. And the men seem to know who he is and what his heritage is which is not the way that you typically see a Christophany. Also, I think if he were Christ in a pre-incarnate state, I doubt that the Lord of glory would have sat still this long and listened to Job's three friends say the things that God is later going to say were completely wrong. Maybe he would have, but I think that's a weak argument for a Christophany. So I, I don't believe he is a Christophany. I believe he's just simply someone who has been given some insight and wisdom despite his young years. He seems to have greater understanding than Job's three friends did. Now, tonight, Elihu is really going to bear down on Job, and he's going to finally identify for us what Job's primary sin is, because Job has been saying that he can't think of a sin, and if he could ask God, God would have to explain it to him, wherein he had done any sort of iniquity that brought this on him. And Elihu's answer is very, very similar to what Paul says in Romans 9, when Paul says, you're going to say to me, essentially, how is this fair You will say then, how does God yet find fault, seeing as no one has resisted his will? Paul's answer at that point is, well, who are you? Because you're talking about God. And who are you, O man, to answer back against God? Well, that's going to be Elihu's argument here. 
If God is absolutely, completely, utterly sovereign and righteous, which he truly, genuinely is, then the very fact, Job, that you answer back to him is your sin. Through all of these years, you've heard me say over and over again that the most often repeated sin in the whole Bible is pride. And that's exactly what Elihu is going to say Job is guilty of. Now, Job's three friends kept saying it was something he did. It must be something you've done, some act. That's why God is punishing you this way. Elihu is pointing out to the three of them that, no, it wasn't anything Job did, but now Job's attitude has become so upset with God that he is now beginning to justify himself and putting God on trial. And God himself, when he shows up, is going to ask that very question to Job. Are you going to accuse me so that you can justify yourself? So it's very clear at this point what Job's real sin is and why he's being called out both by Elihu and then later by God. That sin, that offense, is that he is basically trying to put God on trial. And we've read that a couple of times where Job has said, if I could find him, if I could get him to answer me, he would have to tell me what I did and why this is happening. And Elihu's answer is going to be, who are you to reply to God that way? God is absolutely sovereign and he does whatever he wants. Genuine, true humility would be to recognize that fact. And when God does show up, Job says that he just abhors himself and he repents in dust and ashes. So Job does become repentant. And I think that's the restorative thing that happens between God and Job and why at the end of the book, God restores Job and why Job is righteous enough to sacrifice for his three friends because Job goes from being a really wealthy man. And you will remember Two weeks ago, he was, he was looking back on that and saying, boy, I wish I was like I used to be. I used to be powerful. I used to be rich. I used to be mighty. And, and now I'm made a laughing stock. And because he could remember that about himself, his pride got a hold of him. And he wished he could be like that again. And so Elihu is going to say, you're guilty because rather than recognizing that God can do whatever he wants with what's his, you're trying to put God in the dock. You want to argue against him. You want to be his accuser, and you want to make him answer to you. And that's not just, and that's not right, and that's not the God of the Bible. So whether we're talking about Job or whether we're talking about Romans, the answer is always the same. The answer is, who are you? Through the years when people have said to me that they're suffering, that they're struggling, that they're going through some kind of trouble, the most common question they will ask is, why me? And you know that my answer is always, why not you? Why not you? What makes you any different from anybody else? Righteous, holy, just God can do whatever he wants with what's his. So that's the essence of Elihu's argument. Starting in chapter 34, actually look at the very end of 34, if you look at the last couple of verses, you'll understand the first verses more. Because he's really going after Job now and telling Job that he's guilty. Starting in verse 35, it says, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. 
And you know, when God does show up a couple chapters from now, God's going to say, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without wisdom? So God's going to agree that Job at this point is speaking without wisdom, speaking without knowledge. Verse 36 says, Job ought to be tried to the limit, which is one of the things Job kept saying, that he was just at his wit's end and he wished he could die. And now he's saying, you ought to be tried to the very limit because you answer like the wicked men. For he adds, for Job adds, rebellion to his sin. His sin is pride, and then he adds rebellion to his pride, and he claps his hands among us. In other words, when he was telling the men to be quiet, he was clapping his hands at them in derision, and then he multiplies his words against God. And that's the very reason that he can say, Job's answering like a wicked man, because he is now multiplying words against God rather than recognizing God's right to do whatever he wants. So chapter 34, verse 1, Then Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. In other words, you can tell the difference between sweet and salty in your mouth. You can't do that with your ear. But with your ear, you're to listen to words and test the words. Let us choose for ourselves what's right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. In other words, let's come to an agreement here, to a meeting of the minds. Verse 5, for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. That Hebrew word that's translated right there actually is sometimes translated a sound mind. And I think that's more like what Job is getting at here. Though I'm righteous, God has taken away the soundness of my, of my health and of my mind. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound, my sickness, is incurable, though I am without transgression. So here Elihu is saying this is what Job is arguing. He's arguing that he's righteous, but God took away his sound mind, his sound body, and that he's not going to lie and say, it's my fault, I sinned, therefore God did it. Even though this sickness, even though these things that have happened to my body are incurable, the doctors can't do anything about it, I'm just decaying every day, yet nevertheless I am without a transgression. So Elihu is repeating Job's argument to make sure everybody gets the argument because Elihu is going to point out what the transgression is. What man is like Job? I think this, by the way, is a derisive comment because he says, what man is like Job who drinks up derision like water? Everybody's making fun of him. Everybody's deriding him and he just takes it all. But then he goes in the company of the workers of iniquity and he walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. It's not exactly what Job said, but that's certainly the essence of what Elihu is taking away from it. That Job is essentially saying, what benefit is there then? I mean, if I've followed God and haven't done anything wrong, and yet I ended up in this state, I might as well have sinned. Because what benefit have I gotten from not sinning? 
profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. Verse 10, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness. He's believing that Job has essentially said that what God is doing is somehow unjust, that it is unrighteous of God to do this to righteous Job. So he's accusing Job of saying that God is somehow doing wrong or doing wicked. He is arguing far be it from God to do wickedness, far be it from the Almighty to do wrong. That, by the way, is a very current theological answer to a very current theological argument. I see people arguing about it online all the time, and with fair regularity, I get email, email where people say, is God the author of sin? And my answer is always, no, God is not the author of sin, as if sin emanated from him. Because he's sinless and holy, he cannot sin. That's why he has a devil. The devil is the one who brings about the trouble in the world, all of which serves his ultimate purpose. But God is not the author of the actual sin. Sin does not emanate from him. That's the same thing Elihu is saying here. Far be it from God to do wickedness. And from the Almighty to do anything wrong. And by the way, I wish somebody had told me when I was young that whatever God does is intrinsically right by virtue of the fact that it's an absolutely right and holy God that does it. Because there's nothing wicked in him, and you can't accuse him then of any wickedness, whatever a righteous God does is ipso facto right. It's just the right thing to do because the right God did it. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to that man's work. And he makes that man find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly. And the Almighty will not pervert Justice. Who gave God, who gave him authority over the earth? And who has laid on him the whole world? What he's asking now is the same essential question that God's going to ask. When God shows up, he's going to say to Job, where were you when I hung the earth? What did I hang it on? Do you have any answer to that? Well, this is the same thing Elihu's getting at. Whoever gave God the authority over the earth? Because for you to give God authority, you would have to have that authority in order to say, I now grant you the authority. In other words, no man ever gave God authority. God simply has authority. Therefore, God can do whatever he wants. And since he's not wicked, then whatever he does is right. And he does not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth? And who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, if he was to determine to just gather his own spirit, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. In other words, God is the sustaining life force that keeps everything going. And 
God was not given authority over the earth by his creatures. And if God ever withdrew himself from his creatures, they would go back to being nothing but dust. So he clearly has all the authority. He clearly has all the power. This is all Elihu building up his argument for how do you put that God on trial? How do you ask that God to give you an answer? All flesh would perish together. Man would return to the dust. But if you have understanding, hear this. and Listen to the sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? And it's an interesting question. He may be talking about God and saying that God cannot judge people if he hates justice. The very fact that he rules over people and judges and decides between people means that he loves justice. But he also might be talking about the kings and the princes of the earth because that's where the conversation is now going to go. But if you have understanding, hear this, listen to the sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn a righteous mighty one? Who says to a king, you worthless one? Who says to nobles, wicked ones? Now, that may also be, like I said, he may be speaking of God as the righteous one who rules, in which case the reading would be God is the one, the righteous mighty one, who can say to a king, you're a worthless king. He's the one who can say to nobles, you are wicked nobles. Verse 19 then would be, he shows no partiality to princes, although Elihu or this translation has it as a question. Who shows No partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. So since they're all creatures, since he created them all, he doesn't care about kings or nobles or princes. He doesn't care if you're rich. He doesn't care if you're poor. He's going to call out evil for evil. He's going to call out wickedness for wickedness. Verse 20. In a moment, they the rich and the poor, the mighty, the powerful, all of them die. And at midnight, people are shaken and people pass away. doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, everybody dies. And the mighty are taken even without hand. For his eyes, God's eyes are upon the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. By the way, that reality should kind of worry you. That he sees all your ways and sees all your steps. There's nowhere you can go. There's nothing you can do where you can hide from God. He sees it all. That's why we say that he's omniscient, omniscient, all-knowing. The reason we say that he is omnipresent is because he sees everything. He is everywhere. And there's nowhere that men can go to hide from him. His eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. And there is no darkness or deep shadow wherein the workers of iniquity can hide themselves. For he does not need to consider a man any further that he should go before God in judgment, okay? Essentially what that means is, since God sees all the ways of a man, since God knows all the steps, intentions, thoughts of a man, Since nobody can hide from God, since there's no shadow, no darkness where you can go to hide your deeds from God, then when the time of judgment comes, he doesn't need anybody to plead the case. He already knows. 
He's already prepared for that judgment. He does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. God breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. He doesn't check with them. He doesn't ask them. Don't forget Elihu is still answering Job. Job has said, if I could find God, if I could get God to just sit down and listen for a minute, he would have to explain to me what's going on. It didn't seem fair to Job. It didn't seem right to Job. And he's saying, when he breaks even mighty men, he doesn't do it with inquiry. He doesn't first find out from them what they think about it. He has absolute control. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. And he sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works. And he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a public place. Because they, the wicked, turned aside from following him. And they had no regard for any of his ways. So they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. So he's talking about the high, the mighty, the nobles, the governors, the kings. As they oppress the poor, the poor then cry out to God that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. When he keeps quiet, when God keeps quiet, then who then can condemn? If God doesn't do it, if God doesn't judge, if God doesn't afflict people and raise other people up. If God doesn't do it, really, who's going to do it? This is a judgment. This is an action that only God can do. And when he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when he hides his face, who then can behold him? That is in regard to both a nation and man, so that godless men should not rule, nor be snares of the people, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement, and I will not offend anymore. Teach thou me what I need to do, and if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Has anybody ever said that? He's he's arguing here. When God has judged these people, when God has judged rightly because of the outcries of the poor, even when he judges the rich or the powerful, the kings, the nobles, has he given any of them opportunity to state their case the way Job wants to state his case? Have any of them been able to say to him, oh, I see, okay, you've chastised me, you've punished me, and I bore that chastisement So I won't offend anymore. I'm not going to sin anymore. Just teach me what you don't want me to do. And if I've done any iniquity, then I'll do it no more. Essentially, that was Job's argument. God would have to tell me what I've done, and I would correct my ways. And Elihu is saying, who gets that chance? Nobody gets to do that. Verse 33, shall he recompense on your terms because you have rejected it? In other words, he just said these are godless people. Because they're godless people, they have rejected God. And then when God judges them, they're going to, is God going to allow them to make their case? Oh, I didn't know. If you had just told me, oh, I'll clean up my act. I'll do better in the future. Just instruct me. Now that I know that you're really God and you're really a judge, I'll do better in the future. Is he going to recompense you? Is he going to judge you based on your arguments? Is he going to recompense you on your terms? No, of course not. The terms are all 
his. He's God, you're not. Four, you must choose and not I. This is him talking, I think, to the three friends and saying, okay, there's the essential argument. Which side are you going to choose here? Are you going to choose for Job? Are you going to choose for God? Therefore, declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and a wise man who hears me will say this. They'll say, Job speaks without knowledge. And his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin and claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Chapter 35. Then Elihu continued, as if that weren't enough, as if he hadn't already kind of made his case. Now he's going to continue gunning for Job, and his whole argument is going to be, Job, you're full of pride, and Job, God is absolutely sovereign. How does that balance out? Do you really think you can take your pride before a sovereign God and get him to answer you on your terms? Because that's what Job has been arguing so far. Elihu continued and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? In other words, he's saying, the argument you're making, Job, do you think that's a just argument? Do you think it's just for you to defend yourself, to justify yourself? Wouldn't that make your righteousness more than God's righteousness? And by the way, there are so many people over and over again who attempt to do this very thing who attempt not only to self-justify, and this statement certainly should tell us a whole lot about self-justification. It tells us that you simply can't do it because then you're arguing that your righteousness is more than God's righteousness. But it also answers the question that people argue about online all the time. They try to put God in a box and they try to judge him as if they are judge and jury and God has to answer back to them. And God does not have to answer them because their righteousness and their justice is not superior to his. Here, I think I can make that phrase more succinct. There was a phrase when I was in college back in the 70s, back before the flood, a long time ago. I know, it was a long time ago. There was a phrase, bumper stickers, T-shirts that said, try Jesus. And I can remember the first time that I heard a preacher say, you don't try Jesus. He tries you. He's not on trial. You are. we got to remember that. We have to remember that in the relationship between us and God, he's the judge, not us. And yet human beings and their hubris and their ego keep thinking that they're going to put God on trial. And that is tantamount to saying that your sense of righteous judgment is superior to his. Or even greater that you have the power to somehow execute that judgment of yours. For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I sinned? I mentioned that a few minutes ago, that Job's essential argument boiled down to, I'm being punished this way, though I'm righteous, though nobody can point out my sin to me. None of you three have told me what it is I've done, but since I'm in this state, what advantage was there to my righteousness? 
Even though I've kept my righteous standing before God, even though I've maintained my integrity before God, look at the state I'm in. I should have sinned. What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. All right, I'm going to answer you what your sin is. Here's the answer to the question, what advantage will it be to you? Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. So Elihu is giving him a visual example and Elihu is saying, all you got to do is look up. And as soon as you recognize that the clouds are higher than you are, that's God. God is higher than you are. You can't hold God accountable. This very same thing is said in Isaiah when Isaiah argues as high as the heavens are above the earth. God speaking, he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. So Elihu's saying the same thing. Go look at the clouds. They're higher than you. Therefore, God is higher than you, and you don't get to answer back to God. And you don't get to justify yourself before that God. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? Oh, that's really interesting. That is deep theologically. He is arguing, when you sin, you don't hurt God. His righteousness is intact. His holiness is complete despite you. And if it's true that you don't do any damage to God when you sin, the next question is, and if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? What is that to him? He's still righteous and holy. Now, do you get where he's going? Elihu's going to say, and if you're righteous, what is that to him? How does that change God? Sinfulness and relative righteousness here on the planet is against you. It's against other people. And it hurts you and it harms you. It doesn't do anything to God. God who's been around forever and will be around forever maintains the exact same quality of Godness who doesn't change at all, who is perfectly righteous and holy. You haven't damaged him. You've damaged yourself. And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Your righteousness, your personal righteousness, your do-goodness doesn't improve him. He was perfect to start with, complete and holy, and has been through eternities past before you ever got here. So your righteousness adds nothing to him. Filthy rags. Filthy rags. And your sinfulness takes nothing from him. You don't change God. Or what does he receive from your hand? That's where the filthy rags come in. You don't give him anything. You don't improve him. And you don't make him less. Verse 9 says, Because of the multitude of oppressions, they, the oppressed, cry out. They cry to God. They cry for help. Because of the might, the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night. In other words, the one who brings joy in the midst of the darkness of the night. 
who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth. God gives men more knowledge, more wisdom than he gave kitty cats, puppy dogs, and chickens. He makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. There's the charge. That's your problem. Your pride. Job, your pride has caused you to think that you could boast about your righteousness and somehow your righteousness means something in improving God and that if God were to sit here and answer you, he would have to give account for his ways where your righteousness and relative sin is, is concerned. Well, I'll answer you where you're evil, where your sin is. Your sin is your pride. And evil men are proud. Verse 13, surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you don't behold him. Remember, Job was saying, I can't find him. If I could find him, I could get him to answer me. He's all around me, but I can't seem to find him. He's saying you're you're speaking with empty words. You're crying out empty to him. How much less is he going to answer you when you say that you can't even behold him? The case, your case, your argument is before him, and you must wait for him. (laughs) That's the essence of it. He's already made the argument. Look, God already knows. God doesn't need information. God sees all the ways of men. People don't stand in front of him and make their argument. They don't argue their case in front of him. God doesn't need information. People don't need to tell him anything. He already knows. He's already able to judge completely justly and righteously because he already knows everything. So then you're going to come in front of him And you're going to argue your case in front of him, except the case is already in front of him. And since the case is already in front of him, if he's not answering you, you need to wait for him. You don't demand of him. You don't tell him to come give you an answer. You have to wait for him. And now, because he is not visited in his anger nor has acknowledged transgressions well. In other words, the very fact that he hasn't punished you yet for the way that you have been bold against him. For that reason, Job opens his mouth emptily and he multiplies words without knowledge. Chapter 36. Then Elihu continued and said, wait for me a little and I will show you that there is yet more to be said on God's behalf. In other words, keep listening. Hang with me. Stick with me here. There's more to say. And now he's going to argue for God's absolute sovereignty. Because that's always the answer whenever men try to raise themselves up against God. That's Paul's answer. Paul's answer is, who are you, old man? How do you respond to the one who made you? That's the same argument he's going to make here. He's going to argue for God's sovereignty and say, Job, you in your pride can't make that God do anything to respond to you. Elihu continued and said, wait for me a little while and I will show you that there is yet more to say on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false, 
one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I don't think he's saying that he is the one who is perfect in knowledge because coming up in the next chapter, he's going to refer to God directly as the one who is perfect in knowledge. So that phraseology, the one who's perfect in knowledge, is a reference to God. And he's saying that God, the one who has perfect knowledge, is with you. Behold, God is mighty, but he does not despise. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He's not only powerful, he's not only strong, but he also has this strength of understanding, which is a really interesting turn of a phrase. He is strong in the way he comprehends things. He does not keep the wicked alive, but he gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, which is what Job was arguing. I'm a righteous man, and now God's abandoned me. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever, and then they're exalted. He can do that if he wants. And if they are bound in fetters, and they are caught in cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they have magnified themselves. So God can set up a king and leave him there on the throne forever if he wants to. By the way, that's something he's planning to do. He's going to set up his own king forever, and nobody can stop him when he does it. But he also can set up kings and then bring them down because of their transgressions. To be mighty, to be a noble among men, to be a king, to have power on the earth, means nothing. He can take people down for their transgressions, and then he can hold them guilty because they've magnified themselves. And he opens their ear to instruction. And he commands that they return from their evil. If they hear and they serve him, then they shall end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without understanding, without knowledge, without the enlightenment that God gives. But the godless in heart lay up anger. They store up anger for themselves. They're storing up judgment for themselves because they're godless in their heart. They do not cry for help when he binds them, which is very interesting. He's the one then that binds them, that brings trouble into their life, that brings hardship into their lives. But because they're godless, they don't even cry out to him. And he's the one that could deliver them. Instead, they die in their youth and their life perishes like the cult prostitutes. The reason he mentions that is because that was the lowest of the low. If you worked as a prostitute in the temple of a false god, you were just begging for judgment. He delivers the afflicted from their affliction. He opens their ears in a time of oppression. And then indeed, he enticed you from the mouth of distress. In other words, he brought you to this distress. And he called you. He's bringing you through the distress that you're going through. And instead of it, a broad place with no constraint... And that which was set on your table was full of fatness. Once upon a time, Job said, remember me? I was wealthy. I was powerful. Everything I had when I walked, he said, I walked in butter. I had plenty of fatness. Everything was good for me. 
But God is enticing you. He's drawing you to himself through the distress that you're going through. This is really important for us to remember. We have to remember when we go through our times of struggle, our times of trial, our times of testing, that that's all part of God bringing us to him. Here, I'll put it this way. I've used this phrase many, many times. Uh, When did you cry out to God, even just call out to God? When were you more interested in the things of God? When did you want God in your life more? When everything was really, really good and the bluebird of happiness was on your shoulder and it's all rainbows and kumbaya? That's not when, because that's when you're thinking self-made man and you're walking through your life and you think you're doing just fine. You call out to God. You think about the things of God. You need God in your life when it goes bad. You know that. Everybody in the room agrees with that. And if we can figure that out, God can figure that out. And a faithful God will use the trials of this life to draw you to himself. And the translation here says, he entices you. He draws you through the trial, through the distress. But you, verse 17, but you were full of judgment. You were full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Beware lest wrath entice you to scoffing. And do not let the greatness of the ransom, in other words, don't let the greatness of the price you're paying turn you aside. Because that's what was happening to Job. Because he was going through this trial, because he was going through the pain, the agony, then he was turning aside from what genuine righteousness is, what genuine worship is, recognizing God for who he is. Instead, Job was starting to justify himself as if his righteousness was greater than God's righteousness. Don't let the greatness of the price you're paying turn you aside. Will your riches keep you from distress? Or all the forces of your strength, can they keep you from distress? Do not long for the night That's what Job was longing for. He was longing for death. He was longing for it to be over. Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Be careful. Do not turn to evil. For you have preferred this, this evil, this pride, this boasting. You've preferred that to the affliction that you're going through. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? In other words, whoever gave God instruction and said, this is the right way to do things. God is doing things his own way. And he is exalted in his power. And who is a teacher like him? I think it's all part and parcel of the same argument Elihu is making continually, which is he's taking you through this distress because he's enticing you, drawing you to himself, and you don't like the fact that he's doing it that way, but who's a teacher like him? He knows what he's doing. He's teaching you. He's bringing you back to himself. He's bringing you back to what genuine righteousness is, and who's like God? Only God would have thought that misery and pain could teach people. By the way, it can. Misery and pain can teach people. I've never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. All the big lessons in life, I learned the hard way. And God knows that about me. 
He knows I'm only going to learn it if he teaches it to me the hard way. But who's a teacher like him? Verse 23. Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, thou hast done wrong? Nobody gets to say that to God. Nobody gets to say God's wrong. Remember that you should exalt his work. Of which men have sung. In other words, they've told tales, they've told stories, they've recited psalms, stories, spiritual songs in memory of the exaltation of God's grand work. All men have seen it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is exalted. And we do not know. We don't understand. We don't have an intimate knowledge of how really truly great God is. The number of his years are unsearchable. Here, we can check that one real quick. Here we go. Olivia, how old is God? Uh, See, we don't know, right? I mean, how many years? How many years is God? We don't know. Steve, how old is God? We, we have no idea. When's God's birthday? We don't know. Did you get him a cake? Nobody knows. We don't. It's Elihu is saying, you don't even know those basic things. Like the number of his years. That's unsearchable. God's exalted. And yet we don't really have intimate knowledge of him. For he draws up the drops of water. Okay, he's going to start getting into nature now. He's going to start talking about some of the things that God does. And at the end of this chapter here, he's saying God is the one who brings rain, which brings food. He figured out how clouds work. Nobody really did that. He figured that whole system of evaporation and rain out, and he moves water around the planet via his clouds. God's in charge of that. And in the next chapter, he's going to get into seasons, and he's going to get into heat, and he's going to get into cold and snow, lightning, thunder. God's in charge of all that. And he says, since God's in charge of it, and you're not, and you don't understand it, and you don't know how to do any of it, how exactly are you going to get that God to give an account of his actions to you? You can't. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds then pour down, and they drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? Or the thundering of his pavilion. Interesting language. He refers to the sky as the pavilion of God. Behold, he spreads his lightning about him. And he covers the depths of the sea. You know, this very day, we still are not completely sure how deep the ocean trenches are. And we're still sending submarines and stuff down there with Cameras and lights to try to get some sense of how deep these trenches run. And much to scientists' amazement, no matter how deep into the trenches they get, there's living stuff down there. There's creatures down there. Blind creatures, blind fish swimming around down in the trenches. Whoever sees that, whoever gets any joy out of that, God does. God knows that. God put them down there. He's aware of them. And he covered the depths of the sea. Those deep places that we've never been are sunk in water because God sunk them in water. And he covers the depths of the sea. For by these, by these things that he does, by the bringing of rain, by the bringing of clouds, he judges peoples, whole people groups. Sometimes he judges them by not giving them rain. 
by causing them to go hungry and famine. And he judges the peoples by his clouds. Have you ever gone outside and looked up in the sky and seen clouds and thought to yourself, judgment of God? Well, if you've got food to eat, that's God favoring you. If you're living somewhere where there's no rain and there's a famine right now, judgment of God. God did that. The same God who gave plenty of food to some people groups held back food from other people groups. That's discernment. That's judgment. That's, that's God making sure that peoples move where he wants them to move, does the things that he wants them to do. He's controlling people on the planet through the cunning use of clouds. That's Elihu's argument. You wouldn't think that way. Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea, for by these he judges peoples, and he gives food in abundance. He covers his hand with the lightning, and he commands it to strike the mark. In other words, it's not random. Lightning strikes where God says it will strike. And its noise declares his presence. And the cattle also concerning what is coming up. I don't know how many of you have ever been around horses and cows and stuff. They don't like thunder. And when storms are coming, they get agitated. The cattle get agitated before the storm gets here. It's almost like they have this sense that the storm is coming. And here Elihu says, yeah, that's, that's what God has built into them. So knowing all that. So knowing that God is in control of clouds and lightning, and he's now going to say he's so in control of weather. At this also my heart trembles, and it leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that go out from his mouth. So now he's arguing the thunder is God demonstrating his presence. It makes me think of the book of Revelation. You know, I've said this so many times that in the book of Revelation, the thunder spoke. And John began to write down what the thunder said. And the angel told John, don't write what the thunder said. Which makes me want to know what the thunder said. Which is why I have t-shirts that say, I want to know what the thunder said. Well, here's Job all the way back at the very earliest of biblical books saying the thunder itself is communication from God. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that go out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning goes to the ends of the earth. After it, after the lightning, then that voice roars and he thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Okay, so now he's going to talk about God bringing winter. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour of the rain, he says, be strong. We've had continuous rain most of today. A couple times, pretty strong rain. I was in my house at one point, and I heard what sounded like roaring, and I was walking through the house going, what is that sound? I walked into the dining room so that I could hear the rain slamming against the aluminum roof of my sunroom. It was deafening. Okay, 
Elihu here says, God, that's God. That's, that's God who's doing that, who says how much power the rain should have. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. In other words, when the rain comes, when the snow comes, animals run to the caves and the dens. Some even hibernate all winter because God has brought the snow and the rains and the mighty winds. The beast goes into his lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm. And out of the north comes the cold. That's completely scientifically accurate, by the way. From the breath of God, ice is made. And the expanse of the waters is frozen, which is why when I was a kid, I used to be able to ice skate on the creek behind my house to anybody else's house in the neighborhood. And I never gave thought to, wow, God just froze the expanse of the waters so that I could ice skate around. But it's all God. That's what he's saying. God's in everything, even in the weather, even in the freezing, even in the snow, even in the power of the rain. That's all God. When you hear the thunder, when you see the lightning, that's all God. When you see the clouds, when you see people who have food and people who don't have food, that's the judgment of God. It's all God in his sovereign control over all things. Verse 11, also with moisture, he loads a thick cloud and he disperses the cloud with his lightning. And it, the cloud, Changes direction, turning around by his guidance. He's in charge of where the clouds go. Then it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for his loving kindness, he causes it to happen. So when you walk outside next time and you see a cloud moving, whatever direction it's moving, that's God who's directing it to go where he wants it to go, to go and accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. Are you getting a sense of how absolute Elihu is arguing for the sovereignty of God? He is saying God is in charge of clouds and they do his bidding and they go where he wants them to accomplish his judgment. Sounds like John 3. Sounds exactly like John 3. It goes where it will. Absolutely. And he says... Sometimes it goes to a particular place on the inhabited earth for correction, because God's using it for judgment. Sometimes it's going to other parts of the world for his loving kindness. But he's the one that causes it to happen. So listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his clouds to shine? The answer is no. Nobody knows that. Job doesn't know that. Okay, if you don't know that, Job, then your righteousness does not exceed that of God. You, you don't know the things that God knows. Therefore, you can't hold God accountable. Therefore, you can't put God on trial because when it comes right down to who's really in charge, you've got nothing going here, Job. Do you know how God establishes them? How he makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds and the wonders of one who is perfect in knowledge? There's that phraseology again. God is the one who is perfect in knowledge. And how are you going to explain his wonders? You don't know any of that. You, 
whose garments are hot. In other words, the weather now is hot. He's just described snow. He's just described winter. He's just described ice. Now he's saying you're in the middle of summer and your garments are hot when the land is still because of that south wind. Can you, with God, spread out the skies? Until they're strong as a molten mirror. Molten mirror means like a mirror of brass. When the skies were hot, when people were baking, it was like the sky was made of brass. There were no clouds. There was no water. So God's in charge of the clouds that bring the water. God's in charge of making the sky like brass. Teach us what we shall say to him. That's a little sarcastic on Elihu's part. I relate completely. Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of our darkness, because of our not understanding. Shall it be told him that I would speak? That's what Job was saying. I'll speak to God. If I can get God here, he has to give an answer to me. I would stand up and demand an answer from him. Shall it be told, one who's like that, shall it be told him that I want to speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? There are the two options. Either you're going to be bold enough in your ego to stand up and say, God's got to listen to me. Or once you see God, once you recognize God, you're going to recognize that he's everything and you're nothing. It's just going to swallow you up. And now men do not see the light, which is bright in the skies. But the wind has passed by and cleared them. In other words, the clouds can cover up the stars. You can go out some nights and look up and you can't see the lights in the sky. And the reasons you can't see them, even though they're bright in the sky, is because the wind has blown in the clouds or blown them away so that you can see them. That's all God. Out of the north comes golden splendor. And around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will do no violence to justice, and he is abundant in righteousness. Therefore, men reverence him. Therefore, men fear him. Therefore, men recognize their creatureliness in front of him, because he does not regard any who are wise of heart. I could have just started there and said, there's the lesson for tonight. God does not give regard to anybody who thinks they're smart in their own mind, in their own heart. Those that are egocentric, prideful, those that think that they've got something that they could argue against God, God gives them no regard because he's in charge and he's absolutely sovereign. Now, the phrase was, from the north comes golden splendor. And around God is awesome majesty. It's almost like he's announcing, um, here comes God. Notice that he says that he's coming from the north, which is also interesting because one of the descriptions of Satan when he rose up in his opposition against God was, I will place my throne in the place of the north. I will be worshipped like God. And so that, that sense of God in the north, in his splendor, 
Elihu seems to be saying it's, it's coming. It's coming from the north, the splendor of God. And so chapter 38 starts out with, now the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And God shows up. And God's first argument is going to be, verse 3, gird up your loins like a man. I'm going to ask you, now you instruct me. And it's not going to go well for Job. But God is going to declare his absolute sovereignty. Now, look, we've been saying here at GCA for all these years, coming up on 17 years, we've been declaring the sovereign grace of God. We've been saying God is sovereign, and we keep defining it and defining it and saying what we mean is God is in charge, all-powerful. There's nothing that escapes his hand. He empowers everything. He knows everything. We keep saying that stuff about God. People don't like a God that's like that, but that's what the Bible describes. We keep saying it. I challenge you to listen to the rest of the book of Job with us and see if you can in any way come away with any other conclusion than God is absolutely sovereign. And that's why we're a sovereign grace church. Because God is absolutely mighty and powerful and in control of absolutely everything, which means the only way that men are saved is by his absolute grace, which is why sovereign grace perfectly describes us. Because it has to be grace, because as Elihu has just rightly said, our sin doesn't diminish God, but our righteousness doesn't improve God. We give nothing to God. We don't add to him. We don't make him more holy or more godly. He is utterly and totally complete within himself. Therefore, he doesn't need you. You don't do anything for him. If you're going to spend your eternity in his presence, it's going to be because he wants you, because he loves you, because he is being gracious and merciful to you, that means it's all about him and not about you. And therefore, we worship that God. We fear that God. We reverence that God. That's the very beginning of wisdom. And pride, self-centeredness, I got it. I can do it myself. All of that kind of thinking that is so common to human beings is the absolute antithesis of the kind of dependence that the Bible keeps describing that we have to have on the absolutely sovereign God. We have to recognize our humility and our need of him because he just doesn't need us. He was happy for eternity past without us. And we exist for his glory. We exist and will be in his presence as a testament, as a trophy to his grace to demonstrate more about who he is and what he's like. But it's not about us. You got it? Got it. Okay, then that's the argument that Elihu is making. I may have expanded on it a little bit at the end because Elihu never used the phrase sovereign grace. But... Next week and for the next couple weeks, we're going to hear God defend himself. And he, he's going to run the gamut. He's going to say, I'm in charge of all of it. Absolutely all of it. All righty? All right. All right, good. Questions? Elihu's a pretty smart guy. Yeah. Elihu comes across pretty good. 
Yeah. For the younger of the group, too. <laughs> yes, sir. So what Elihu is saying is that God's attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are clearly manifest in all that was made so that Job is without excuse. Yeah, it sounds very Romans 1 and 2, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Elihu read Romans and then he went straight to Job. He's like laying that out, all the details of that exactly. Yeah, exactly right. He's got Spurgeon on the iPad. <laughs> Which also means, by the way, that when Paul said that, that wasn't unique to Paul. That wasn't new to Paul. That was standard scriptural truth. Like he had said, you know, all of scripture is God breathed. And uh, he went back into the scripture and found that exact argument, just brought it up again to the Romans. It makes me wonder what was the scope of Elihu's revelation just I mean, what, what did he have compared to what we have? And he was able to... He got it from afar. He got it what? Yeah, oh, he got it from afar. From afar, yeah. yeah. I actually thought you said he got it from a bar. And I thought, what in the <laughs> world is Steve saying right now? Yes, he got it from afar, as he said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting that he made the statement, watch all a man give to God. Yeah. Because it reminded me of something that one of my professors in college used to say. Because it just frosted him. When people would be sharing the gospel, they say, Jesus just wants you to give him his heart. Give, you, give him your heart. He say, Jesus doesn't want your heart. Your dark, dirty, depraved you. heart. Right. <laughs> yeah. that, that worthless, unclean thing. He wants to give you a new heart. Yeah. I don't have anything to offer him. As he lied, he said, well pointed out. Yeah, how do you improve on perfection? Anything else? We're good? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.